Hi, my name is David Speed. And I'm Adam Brazier. And this is the Creative Rebels podcast. Featuring inspirational stories and practical advice from some of the most prolific and successful creators in the world. Adam and I have co-founded multiple creative businesses and turned our varied passions into our careers. There's never been a better time in history to make a career from being creative. So many people will tell you that you can't do it, but we're here to show you that you definitely can. Right, let's do a podcast. Welcome back, Rebels. Welcome back. It's time to talk, Adam, about Weenie and the Pickle. I was wearing a Weenie and the Pickle t-shirt the other day. I'm glad that you're representing the brand. So Weenie and the Pickle is our friend Rip, who set up a sandwich delivery business that was doing so, so well before lockdown. If anyone's ever worked in an office where you've got like the sandwich lady comes around with like a trolley of like sandwiches, crisps and all those kind of things, he basically tried to make a modern version of that. So just made absolutely banging sandwiches and would hand deliver them to your office. What worked really well about it is the fact that it wasn't the fact that they were good sandwiches and they were very, very good sandwiches, but the fact that he was so personal in his approach. So much of what he loves to do is that actual in- engagement. And every week he'd go to the same places, see the same people, and there'd be a relationship started to form with him and his audience. And I remember even hearing someone say, even if I already had lunch, I would still buy from him because he's such a nice guy. Yes, yeah, so I suppose part of the the reason that the brand is probably successful is is a lot to do with the founder's character and personality, which um, which definitely does come through. Um, but I I spoke to I spoke to him on the phone the other day. I don't know if you've caught up with him recently, but he's actually um, having to close the business because of the current situation. And it it really got me thinking. And obviously, we, we both know Rip, and he's 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 a go-getter and he's always positive and upbeat about everything and he was like he was sad but he was like but you know I'll be back and whatever and I just thought I just thought how similar his story is probably is to a lot of our listeners and I wanted to get across that at the moment it's fine to get us I'm calling it a survival job get a survival job treat it as a survival job it's what you need to but don't forget about your dreams don't let this derailment of whatever your ideas or your goals were to to actually put the final nail in the coffin of whatever you're about to try i think because we've got a lot of people that use the lockdown period to think of new ideas to to kind of fine tune their skills and to maybe pick up something new but then the people who were just on that that those very early stages have probably suffered quite a significant knockback a lot of people have and i think it's just important to keep your goals and focus on what's going to happen in the future your goals and your dreams there they shouldn't change just because the world's told you at the moment you can't do that like it is such an unusual time at the moment and for a lot of people it's not going to be possible to be doing what you've been doing currently and if there's not currently a way to adapt a lots of businesses have changed and adapt and found new ways to cope and get through this but that's not possible for everyone like if you're a like food delivery service is only just getting set up. You haven't spent the years like growing an audience to be able to sell to you to to look after you through these times. Like the brands that are doing okay now might have uh, might only be running on say 10, 20% of what they had previously, but that 10, 20% is still enough to continue. So I think, and I've been saying this to a few people actually recently where just because it's not happening now, it doesn't mean it won't ever happen. If you had a good product, if you had a good idea previously and it was working and people were buying from you in that other climate, when that climate returns, which it will at some point, then those things can start again. And I think don't completely give up on those dreams yet. Just put them on hold for now. And as yeah, you said there, it's like, get something that's going to make you survive because surviving through this is going to be the hardest part. Once we're out the other side, then things will look so much better. Yeah. And I think when that time rolls around, the opportunities are going to be vast because so many people were going to be slow off the mark. So many people will have resigned themselves to the fact of like, oh, my idea didn't work. And then they've they've gone and got a survival job that's then just become their full time job. And they're not they're not in that headspace. So I think it's important to always have that in the back of your head and know that when the time is right, that will be the time when I strike. And then you'll be early. You'll be more successful. You'll get more momentum going forward from choosing the right time if listening to this this sounds really familiar to you this is a time to almost have an action plan so go and do what you need to now to be safe be secure survive but then have a plan in place where as soon as you're ready 
you can kick straight back into action and carry on where you left off. Definitely. Uh, Weenie in the Pickle is is sandwich delivery. So the way Rip set that up was he was really strategic. He worked out who his ideal customers were, like the kind of people who were going to spend £6 on a sandwich and then probably buy the add-ons and get the, the brownies and all of the other stuff that he sold to go with it. He had all of those relationships with so where he had like regular contracts with different buildings that he would go to or in in certain different areas. And he was really smart as well. He he tested different areas and found out like, oh, what works in Shoreditch doesn't work in St. Paul's and, and whatnot and wherever. And found where the the kind of tech startups were and and like his ideal customers. And then he went to them, he presented to them. Um, he had to, like, sometimes he had difficult, um, conversations had to be had with like building management to allow this random person to come in and start selling food. But once he got that in place, he had a nice business going, but then now a lot of those businesses that he was selling to, they're out of business themselves. Buildings are not opening up. We, we're not really mixing with people all that much, like someone coming in off the street. So now's not the time, but he knows that it works. He knows that he's got a good product. He has a track record of delivering great food and people really enjoyed it. So as soon as the time is right, he'll be back and he'll be back with a vengeance. It's like, this is a small setback, but it's not going to derail his vision. Yeah. And I think one thing that is really interesting with him is the fact that we had a conversation probably about two or three months ago and I thought, well, why don't you go and do this? Because this would be a way to sell sandwiches to people but he was like, but that's not what I want to do. Like he didn't want to sacrifice what he actually enjoyed doing about the job just for the sake of selling stuff. And I think that was really good. The fact that he had his why, he had what he enjoyed. Yeah, he didn't want it to become something that he was just doing for the money. He left his kind of corporate job beforehand to come and do this thing that he loved. It's such an important important case study, isn't it? Because probably with his existing fan base, he he could just sell online. But if that's if that's not what he enjoys, then then really what's the point? I think a lot of people do get caught up with that and, and they're making business decisions over kind of heart decisions, head decisions that that are taking them away from what they love. And really what you love should always be at the core of what you do. Let's uh let's stop gassing him up now because he'll get a big head. But um <laughs> but yeah, because I'm such a professional, I am gonna uh slightly segue that into this week's guest. Now is the time that you can be like working on your, get your survival job, working on something on the side. I think one of the most important things that came across to me in this episode is how positive Goldie was about the videos that she was making in the beginning that no one was watching. And so yeah. Goldie, our guest uh, this week, is a content creator who, uh, who has made over 800 consecutive daily videos. And one we asked her about how it was in the beginning and she was so cool about like she was like oh no one was watching my videos but that was great that gave me the chance to experiment and and see what what i enjoyed doing and i just thought that was such a great take because most people see that that view counter on three or four views and and get discouraged yeah yeah that's super interesting because it's like most people won't start on video because they're scared of how other people think they come across on that video and I think actually, there's not actually anyone watching. So it is time to grow that confidence. It's almost like the absolute opposite to the way that everyone thinks it is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for us, had we not done audio first, then video would have been a real jump. So I, I totally understand people who who do have their reservations about it. And and it's not for everyone. I mean, I, I think it's about finding what what does work for you. Just because video has the capability of really skyrocketing people's careers and it really can do wonders for a business if it's not right for you though then it, that those things won't happen anyway because you you won't feel comfortable um but i, I just yeah. think there is something to I, I guess that's the good thing about why goldie was was doing them daily because that learning curve is so steep and in the beginning you can get over your your sort of reservations of like oh i don't know how i'm gonna appear because you're you're pushing yourself every single day. So it's like, as soon as one's over, it's like, well, that was yesterday's video. Let me focus on today's. It gives you that kind of, uh, that progression and that drive. Yeah. And there's, um, and what I think is great about just doing so many in a row as well is the fact that there's a content creator on YouTube I watch called Roberto Blake. And he says that you need to make a hundred crappy videos before you make one good video. And actually, if you do one every day for a hundred days, that's three months of your life, which is a, a hell of a commitment. But 
actually not that much in the grand scheme of things. So if you put out 100 videos, even if no one watches them, by that 100th video, it's going to be a good video because you've put so much time into learning the skills it takes to create a good video. You're going to be more confident than you were initially. And confidence, that comes like, confidence comes across so much on like audio and video and that's what people really resonate with yeah absolutely so let's get into this week's episode with goldie chan goldie chan is a founder writer and linked influencer i made that up do you like that i thought of that in the episode as she was talking i was <laughs> she said linkedin influencer and i was like oh obviously linked influencer linked influencer after leaving her 95 goldie started making videos for linkedin whilst looking for a new job her daily videos gradually gained traction until her popularity on the platform exploded and she eventually ended up creating over 800 consecutive daily videos. Goldie's story is one of commitment and consistency, which always pays off in the end. In this episode, we talk about LinkedIn, storytelling and working with brands. It's better to build first and then monetize. So it's to me, it's always better to prove that you can actually do it like prove that you are that creative person and then have brands come to you. So in 2017, uh, I guess LinkedIn wasn't really kind of the, the platform that I would maybe think of it today. Um, I know it doesn't have like the, the coolest vibe to it, but it's definitely a lot more cool now than it was in 2017. Yes, so I will say that I lost a lot. In fact, most of my friends, not my close friends, but those second tier friends, I lost most of them in 2017 when I started doing video content on LinkedIn because it was so uncool and it was so uncool to the point where people <laughs> were angry with me. And that's how I knew I was maybe onto something because people were getting so angry that I wasn't creating videos on link, uh, on YouTube, on Instagram, on, literally on any other platform you could create videos on. I wasn't doing it. I was only creating these videos on LinkedIn and I would get five likes and I would get really excited because three of the five likes were from people <laughs> I didn't know, which honestly, whenever you're starting something new and creative, I yeah. think that's always this exciting part. Um, and so in 2017, yes, it was even more uncool uh, than it is currently. And it's so funny you say that because there's a term I want to bring up. Um, there's an article uh, that a colleague of mine wrote and included me as one of the main features. And it's called, um, I, I forget what the full title is, but it talks about norm core <laughs> and how LinkedIn is the biggest norm core platform there is and somehow I managed to make in my own small universe norm core cool. <laughs> <laughs> and what was it about LinkedIn that drew you into it so much? I have to say and I think a lot of creative people will appreciate this. So in 2017 I could make videos that no one was really watching and that is really freeing because you think I'm going to get 10 video views on this video, but really those 10 are probably people I know. Um, it's and I your wasn't, mom. it's probably my mom. <laughs> it's not, it wasn't me trying to go the V word viral. I just wanted to make videos I cared about. So the first 50 consecutive daily videos that I did, and I did over 800 consecutive daily videos. Um, the first 50 I did were just on social media and branding of pop culture. So I would take things like Harry Potter or Trains in America, and I would go into the history and the branding and the metrics behind those phenomenons from say a train station or uh, from the Wizarding World of Harry Potter <laughs> or from different places that made sense. And these were not overly produced videos. They were really, yeah. they were really vlogs um, and it was very experimental at the time. What, what was the decision behind choosing to do it every day? I think this is a little bit about how a lot of creatives work. So one day became two, two became 12. Uh, and at 12, which I never thought this would happen because you have to keep in mind the entire first three months, I'll be honest, that I was doing LinkedIn video, I thought I will get my nine to five job. I will, 
<laughs> once I'm done with this, once it feels wrapped, I'm gonna go back to a nine to five job. And really at video 12, one of my guy friends texts me and he's like, Goldie, I'm editing a video and you're in it. And I'm like, that's cool. Uh, what is it? And he's like, it's a keynote that Jeff Weiner, who's the CEO of LinkedIn, is giving. And he's mentioning you as one of the top creators. And I'm just like, what? What? And so by that time, um, video 12, I'm now a seasoned pro. I've done 12 videos. <laughs> I was, <laughs> I was actually LinkedIn. doing, I know, um, I was doing interviews and stuff. So they featured an interview I did with a friend who was, I think at the time, visiting from Australia. And so I was building an international community and I was interviewing people literally from all over the world, but in person. And I think that's really powerful, which I think we can attest to, especially right now when we are all unfortunately remote and we can't travel as much. There's something so lovely about interviewing people in person. Oh yeah, we miss it so much. And we yeah. were we were gonna interview you in LA. Um, but that was that was the goal. So um, I know but, I'm so sad. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's all good. I, I think like when you when you interview in person, you 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 really sort of make connections. But I have been surprised at how at how good the the this what we're doing now, like how good it has been. Because um, I still yeah. feel like you do you do still develop a relationship with a person after after an interview. So it's still cool. Yeah, I feel like the technology is there just enough that you can still pick up little bits of body language, emotions, and you can still see those little changes in people's faces. I think that's what I was kind of most worried about to start with, is the fact that you wouldn't see those little cues where you can really, I feel like that's when a great conversation happens, when you start to pick up on people's mm -hmm. body language, and it, you kind of, you see them light up a little bit, you see their kind of shoulders sit back as they're relaxing, and it's those things that you can then like, oh, well, okay, they're getting into it now, and it becomes a lot more natural. But yeah, I think it, it's been great since we've started doing it. That's amazing. I'm so glad it makes sense to do a video component, even if the majority of your audience is audio, just so you can connect exactly, yeah. really with your guests. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because I remember like saying beforehand, I remember like I've had a few phone interviews where people ring you up and interview you for a publication or something, and it's over the phone, but I couldn't tell you what those people were like or anything about them after. It was almost like they were just a machine just talking to me on the phone. They probably Whereas, were. Right? Maybe it was, yeah. <laughs> I suppose with the way that Google's going now, in the future, a virtual assistant can just do all of our jobs for us. Well, I mean, I will say this. My agency is called Warm Robots, and I am a huge, huge nerd. And so it is actually named after um, Battlestar Galactica, uh, which oh, is... best show ever. Best show ever. And so Warm Robots are the Cylons in the show. Yeah. They're the sentient androids who are super intelligent and very good with strategy which is what my agency does take over the world <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing and i mean so you mentioned there about being a nerd and you've always been like openly um nerdy and and what's really interesting is that you're you're i know i'm i look dude i collect toys i'm resisting kind of geeking out about your shelves behind you but <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I know <laughs> I know people can't see it who are listening to the podcast. So I will just say that I have this is maybe one twentieth, one fiftieth of my toy collection. Um, but I have quite a few toys behind me, everything from retro Disney to uh Funko Pops to a Pixar ball from Pixar. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah, we, we're going to have to do a separate podcast just about the toys. But um, but like <laughs> when it comes to to doing like doing the stuff that you enjoy, it was it's really cool that in the beginning those those were the videos. Is like you were just talking about stuff that that you enjoyed, but then the creativity of it was then just smashing like the branding edge of it. So it was still relevant to people, but you got to just chat about what you enjoy, and I'm sure that 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 made those videos like not really a chore like that would be fun to make a video about something that you're interested in yeah i have to say you know it sounds crazy but the first 100 videos i did so one eighth of all the videos i did over the course of two years uh those were so fun and i was you know i wasn't sleeping let's be honest for the whole 800 video duration i wasn't sleeping for the first 100 i wasn't sleeping and it was so fun to explore on top of that i had a cohort 
of also video creators. There were maybe five or six of us, not all of them actually create videos anymore, but we were all banding together and we were liking each other's posts. That's where I got the five likes from. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, later, of course, I may, have, I may be getting more than five likes on my videos now, wink, wink. Um, but at the time, I will say those five likes felt more exciting and intense than now when I get thousands of likes, because in the beginning, when you're starting, it just yeah. means so much. So as you're kind of racking up videos and you've now got a hundred, at what point does it feel like actually there's now a pressure to keep creating rather than just doing it for the fun? Because there must be a time when it gets to, people are expecting something because you've done it every single day. For example, like I used to watch daily vlogs quite a lot. And I remember there's a guy who used to post at 8 a.m. Uh, US time every morning. So I'd be there waiting for it to drop. And then if it didn't drop, you'd see like the comments on the previous videos be like, what's happened? What's happened? What's going on? Because there wasn't that regular thing because people were just like in need of it. And then a video didn't come out that day. And it was like the internet was going crazy for it because people just needed those videos. Like at what stage did it get to be a bit like that? I think really around, sadly, right around when I said the 100-ish mark when it stopped being fun and became work because there was an expectation and before that you know and that's the other thing you gotta think a hundred videos i had to do a hundred daily videos before there was an expectation from my audience that i would do a next yeah. one and most people think i have so many people i remember i used to talk to who would be like all right i'm going to put 13 videos out there and then i'm going to have a massive audience and then everything will go viral. And I'm like, I did a hundred videos before people were just like, oh, you do videos? You know, yeah. before there was even an idea that I may, maybe yeah. did videos. And I will say this, one of my favorite stories is on video 80, because I just documented my whole life based off videos and not months and years, unfortunately. So on video 80, I'm sick, it's Halloween. And I've already uploaded my daily video. So I'm like, I'm done. So I'm curled up in bed and I suddenly get a massive text, just text, text, text. And people are just like, get back on LinkedIn right now. You need to check this out. And I'm like, what is it? Send it to me. They're like, no, you should see this for yourself. So I get on LinkedIn and Peter Roybal, who's the head of video at LinkedIn has dressed up as me Amazing. for Halloween. So he's, <laughs> <laughs> he's bought a green wig and if you can't, for those of you who are on audio and can't see my hair, my hair is bright green. Um, and this is not a wig. This is my, really, truly my hair attached to my head. Um, so he bought a green wig. He bought a hoodie because that's really what I was wearing a lot of in those days. Uh, and they made a fake LinkedIn frame, a fake like paper frame for the site. Yeah. And they took a picture of cool. him pretending to vlog himself on LinkedIn, quote unquote, with through the paper frame. Uh, and he just wrote, thank you to Goldie Chan and all the other video creators on the platform. So suddenly I went from being one of many, like hundreds at that point, maybe not hundreds, but dozens of video creators yeah. to the one. And that yeah. transition truly was, I think the point when I actually started taking it more seriously um, and I, was really like, okay, I think I need to keep going until at least video 100, video 150. Uh, and as you know, it just, it kept going from there. <laughs> so at that moment where you kind of get full, like pushed forward as like the kind of poster girl for LinkedIn, I suppose, who do you look at, who do you look for inspiration at that point? Because from the outside, it looks like you're the one at the top. You're the one that everyone else wants to be. Where are you getting inspiration from? So I just made a face because it's so true. Um, when you suddenly become, and I think around that time, LinkedIn asked me to teach, which still exists and you can watch it, yeah. uh, a brand new experimental course for them on LinkedIn learning on how to make videos on LinkedIn. So not only was I literally the poster child and that I got shouted out, but I made a full course. Uh, I wrote the book on LinkedIn <laughs> on how to make a LinkedIn video and I think at that point, then it becomes, you can choose one of two paths. You can be like, I am the best. Oh, no one else knows <laughs> what they're doing on this platform. And I'm laughing as I say that. Or, you know, number two, which is the route that I choose, which is I never know everything. They're, that's insane. 
Um, I look to a lot of different other platforms to get cool ideas and to think through what are new ways to communicate over video, what are new subjects to talk about. Because if you rest on your laurels and you just say, I absolutely know everything, your video content gets so stale so fast. I've been thinking about this a lot recently. I've been thinking in terms of like LinkedIn content and how if you start to take the approach of you're on TikTok and you're doing short snappy videos because I feel like that's aimed at a younger demographic and it's slowly aging up. So I feel like that kind of content will hit LinkedIn eventually. So I thought it would be great if you could start doing that kind of content now to almost be the first ones to do this new style of content. Well, I definitely have to say, because you just said that LinkedIn has LinkedIn stories, which is currently in beta. Um, And so it's short form uh, video content, exactly like you're describing. And I'm very curious when it launches more internationally, um, what people will be using that short form content to create and what style of content will come out, but then there will be two separate types of video that exist on the platform, right? There'll be LinkedIn stories, which is essentially Instagram stories. And then there'll be long form video content, that edited video. And currently right now, also still in beta is LinkedIn live. So um, the ability to create a live stream show. When you when you talk about the, the head of video dressing up as you, I think one of the preconceptions that a lot of people have of LinkedIn is that they can't really be themselves there because they hear the word professional or the the network for professionals or whatever the tagline is. And I think people feel like, oh, well, I have to go and be very quote unquote professional within that space. But yet you've proven that you can have green hair, you can talk about Harry Potter on the platform and still build a huge following. So how, um, like, so how was that manifested for you in like bringing your personality across? Have, is there anything you've held back or have you been just completely goldy on the platform? You know, of course there's things I held, hold back. Um, and I think this is true of anyone who's become <laughs> basically a public persona. There's things that you just don't share. Mostly actually because I have a philosophy that it's nice to have secrets, it's nice that there are things that people just don't know, your public doesn't know, your fans don't know. Um, But in general, I mean, the essence of it is essentially me. Like, I don't hide that I play Dungeons and Dragons. In fact, I write about it on Forbes. So that's the other thing I do is write about personal branding and storytelling on Forbes, and it makes my editor quite nervous, to be totally honest, that I write about quite a few (laughs) nerdy things, and I tie them to the idea of leadership in large corporations. Um, But I think those are really interesting parallels. I think why it's worked for me is because I can tie the nerd to business, right? Like I can tie all these beautiful things that I've learned in my nerdish ecosystem to ideas in marketing, business, branding, etc. And then it's very meta because I'm often asked to speak and teach personal branding. And that is 100% based off the fact that I built truly my personal brand in two years. I mean, before two years ago, I, of course I existed. I mean, I'm a human being. Like I, <laughs> I was on this planet or so was I, I mean, I'm secretly a Cylon, but even then I still <laughs> existed in my other Cylon body. Um, but I existed before that time, but people didn't know me like they know me now. And so I created a brand in under two years, really. Uh, And that brand has completely changed my life. And it's really fun for me to try to teach other people how to let in their own personality into their brand. Because just like you said, I think a lot of us are told to never, and especially you guys are in the UK. So I've spoken to the UK quite a few times, but um, you're told not to fully express yourself. And I think as long as you do that in an appropriate way, why not like why not talk about how you love like nascar why not talk about how you love to collect toys i think all of these are a friend i just interviewed he is a bodybuilder at 45 and so he's talking a lot about doing bodybuilding but he's also founded and sold startups like big huge startups that you might recognize and i think you know building in at least 
I call it the 25%. 25% that is truly you into your business brand, I see nothing wrong with that. In fact, I think we're so bored with dry, I call it cardboard brands, yeah. uh, because there's just, I mean, nobody wants to eat cardboard. I mean, I'm very sorry if you have to eat cardboard, if that's your life, but uh, <laughs> it's so much better instead of eating cardboard to eat a chocolate chip cookie. I'm saying this now because I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think it's so important to bring that personality into it because it's like, if I'm coming to someone, I'm like, hey, I need personal branding. Who do I go to? And I look around at who the different people are. If there's just loads of generic faces that are just like, well, there's nothing about them that really draws me to them. But then if I'm like absolutely obsessed with Pixar and I come across a bit of your content, see a little thing in the background, I'm like, she's the one that I need to connect with because we're obviously on the same like wavelength. And I feel like if you've got a brand and you're trying to appeal to everyone, it's just, it's never going to be as powerful. You're never going to get that emotional reaction that you would get if there is someone like the fact that you mentioned Cylons, I'm like, fucking yes. Like there's definitely like, I'm like, I'm on that level. Whereas it's a great time just... to mention, you know, follow me on Instagram because my handle there is Goldie <laughs> Cylon. Because I'm not just like, I'm not just saying I'm a fan. I am truly and well a fan. In fact, there's a little, here we go. You guys can't see it Cylon. on the audio, but it's a little Cylon figure right in my background. <laughs> So you mentioned that people were saying that, uh, like, oh, why aren't you, why aren't you creating these videos on YouTube? One of the things about YouTube is obviously that you can monetize your videos there. What, like, so you're making these videos essentially for free on LinkedIn. At what point did you quote unquote monetize that and start to turn it into a, into a business? Um, I love this question mostly because I also semi hate this question. <laughs> because the first five months that, you know, really six months, let's be generous here, that I was creating videos on LinkedIn, everybody's like, you're so stupid. I, I cannot tell you how many times people told me I was stupid. Um, but they're like, you're so stupid, you can't directly monetize. It's not YouTube. Just start dropping your videos on YouTube. And I was like, no, I actually really like keeping it platform specific and not having, and also these were not videos optimized for YouTube. A lot of them were shot vertical. Um, and so they're just, they wouldn't do well on YouTube. So there's to me no point um, because they're optimized for LinkedIn and LinkedIn only. And when I was thinking about monetization, you know, in the beginning, of course, and I say beginning loosely, like month four or five, I started thinking I've been doing videos for four to five months uh, every yeah. single day of my life, including the weekends I was doing a video. So this includes literally every single day of my life. Um, and I thought about monetization, but there was nothing really, honestly, that made sense. And I will say that I have been very lucky in that, and I think this is true of many creative people, when my work was so showy and it was so out there, brands came to me. Why? Because I, I wasn't actually trying desperately to make a series that was going to be sponsored. I made a series that was independent of sponsorship and so brands came to me to create content because they knew I could do it because they, they could literally reference hundreds and hundreds of videos that I had done that proved what I do and also proved my audience. So I sometimes I think instead of trying to get the mortgage to buy a house, to build and buy a house, why don't you build the house first yourself move in and then when somebody is like hey i would like to move into the house with you <laughs> like to pay for part of your house and you're like sweet great um that was probably the weirdest analogy i've ever given but um i think it's true in that it's better to build first and then monetize so it's to me it's always better to prove that you can actually do it like prove that you are that creative person and then have brands come to you and i think it's funny to say this now, but the first brand that came to me was WeWork. And in 2017, let me tell you, they were doing really good in 20. <laughs> we don't need to talk about now, um, but in 2017, they were doing great. And the, it was a huge brand to come to me, random person who has never gotten brand sponsorship before um, and be like, we want you to be an ambassador. And let me just say, I was personally blown 
away by that. I mean, it was a huge, huge deal for me. And that was the first brand that I work with in that capacity to try to monetize my videos. But to me, the goal was ironically never to monetize. The goal was at some point I'm going to get a real job. And the great irony is I kept getting more and more consulting work. Um, I kept getting videos that people wanted to sponsor or fly me out and create original content. Um, I kept getting work, but I was never chasing, especially from 2017, 2019, I was actually never chasing the work. I didn't really do cold outreach. I would actually meet brands and I, this is what I still do today to run my agency. If I meet a really cool brand, like I met a brand called Thinkific a while back at a conference and I just, I'm very much this person too, to be totally honest. Uh, I met them at a lunch and I just said, you guys are cool. I'm going to be an ambassador. Uh, <laughs> I think, <laughs> I feel like people are sometimes taken <laughs> aback by that, right? They're like, oh, okay. Um, because to me, I come from a place of confidence. Like I know exactly what I can offer them. I know exactly what my skill set is. And if they don't like it and they don't want me to do it, then I, I won't do it. And I'm not personally offended. I just don't get personally offended by business decisions. And so if somebody doesn't want to work with me as an ambassador, I see that as a business decision. Yeah, I think that's a really great way to think about it because a lot of people, they do, they'll send out constant emails trying to get people to work with them and they'll take the, the no's really, really personally. But yeah, I suppose if you separate like this is personal, this is business, anything that comes back as a no as business is completely fine. And you just, that's just a business thing. You Everything that comes it. back a yes is personal. Exactly, yeah, yeah. they love me. <laughs> so who are your, who are your clients now? Is it mostly brand work or do you work with small businesses as well? I work with small businesses that I really like. Um, so I'm, I'm incredibly picky uh, and temperamental as a person. Um, and I treat my agency like an extension of myself since I'm leading it, I'm leading my team. So I mostly work with big brands. Like we work with Adobe, we've worked with Lego, we've worked with like quite a bit of these, you know, nice name dropper brands. But of course, a lot of our bread and butter is working with smaller brands that are doing interesting things. In fact, because my interests are so weird, to be totally honest, we work with a brand that deals with waste, uh, waste management, which is incredibly important every single place in the world, right? Because if, it's not sexy to think about, but every single place in the world needs waste yeah. management. Uh, just one of those facts of life. And I'm currently talking to a brand that I very much like, I can't name names, uh, but they deal in funeral and like the, sorry, in the memorial service industry, I believe it's called. And so once again, it's to me another industry and they aren't an Adobe, but to me it's fascinating to delve into that world. And it's a service that people really want. It's a service that people are really looking for during this time. So I am very happy to have my agency work with brands that are doing to me what I consider like necessary or interesting services because there are so many fluff brands out there mm. that it's cool to work in industries that are uncool. I mean, I'm, I mean, one of my friends called me after that article came out, the queen of normcore, because I love what is uncool. Like I loved LinkedIn when it was very uncool. Um, I liked really much, very much working with this waste management client. Like I, <laughs> I'm going to hopefully get this memorial service client. Like I really enjoy working with uncool brands that are providing a real service. Well, I suppose something like that, it's, um, it's more of a challenge, isn't it? It's like, it's not something mm -hmm. you've done before. It's not something that yeah. other people have generally done before. And I think it's not always nice when you kind of, when you're creative to be able to take two things that are just completely different and put them together so it's like how can we take this thing that no one would normally like go near or do this kind of funky design around and then it's just like make a cool version of that i feel like everything could just do with a bit of like fun and personality added into it it doesn't matter really what it is i totally agree and i think that it's it's very easy to make nike cool if you yeah. understand what i mean it's very easy to make a cool brand cool it's very hard to make an uncool yeah. brand cool 
because it's not just slap on a new logo uh, and yeah. hope that it hits, right? If you're doing that work, you have to really think through how you can make that creative work resonate and how you can tell the story. I'm such a fan of storytelling. I mean, this is literally in my Forbes bio. Uh, so at Forbes, I don't know if you guys know too much about how Forbes usually works, but most people pitch Forbes to write. Um, and so Forbes mm -hmm. came to me and they sucked up to me <laughs> and they uh, offered me, I think it wasn't an ambassadorship, but it was a fellowship. So first they gave me a fellowship. And then a few months into that, they were like, how would you like to write for us? So I originally pitched something totally different that I wanted to write on. And then they said, no, here is your column. You're going to write about storytelling and personal branding in the digital age. And this is very rare. Forbes very rarely asks people to write. And even more rarely on top of that, they assign you an exact, we call them swim lane, um, to write within. And I am so, so thankful that they told me to write on storytelling and personal branding in the digital age because they knew me better than I knew me at the time. I still love writing about this. And I think the topic that I picked, yeah. I would have loved writing about it too, but this is so much cooler to have, to literally be paid to write about storytelling for a living. <laughs> so what makes a good story? Well, I always like to reference Pixar and the 22 <laughs> rules of Pixar, um, thinking through how you tell a brilliant story. But, you know, at the essence of a good story, I call it a triangle. There's a storytelling triangle. Um, and there's three parts to this at the end of the day. There's the story itself. There's the person who tells it. And then the person who listens. So the person who tells it might be a large set of people and the person who listens might also be a large set of people. But at the end of the day, I really believe storytelling is distilled into simply a triangle and you have to hit all three points of the triangle to tell a really brilliant story. Because if you don't think about who your audience is, you only have a line. You just have you and the story you want to tell, but say mm -hmm. you have just you and the people you want to talk to and you don't have a cohesive story, once again, people aren't going to listen. So you really need, oh, and obviously if you don't exist in that equation, then you also don't have a story, yeah. but you need all three points of a triangle to effectively tell a beautiful story. And then everything else around that, I mean, that's what makes really amazing stories amazing. Yeah, I think that works for all kinds of creative. Like, for example, mm -hmm. like a piece of artwork without thinking about who the audience is who might consume that or look at it. It's like there's going to be a disconnect there. It's like if you want to grow an audience around the things that you're creating, you always has to be that triangle that's involved. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and I think it just makes things, and we're, I'm sure every single person on this podcast, at least right now, is a visual person, and I clearly am also a very visual person. I do a lot of writing, but I actually see writing almost in a visual way, if that makes sense, um, because I yeah. believe words are, to me, like colors and sounds, too. Um, and I think it's helpful to think about stories in a really visual way instead of, uh, you know, a long list of bullet points, which to me feels incredibly dry, but yeah. some people process information like that. Yeah, like I'm absolutely addicted to metaphors. Anytime yeah. I can make some kind of analogy <laughs> and then turn it into a story, like literally on my desk here, I've got something that I thought about earlier and I've turned into a full diagrammed picture of a little town because that's the way I want to be able to describe it. I mean, I have to be and... honest, I usually carry three notebooks with me um, at a time. Do I need three? No. Do I have three? Yes. I have a notebook <laughs> for my notes. I have a notebook for my weekly calendar, which I also do notes on. And then I, of course, I have a moleskin, right? Which is just to write thoughts and when I'm feeling very artsy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've got three moleskins in arm's reach right here. <laughs> When it comes to um, when it comes to storytelling, I think that's something that a lot of people really struggle with. When you when you're working with clients, is that something that sort of comes up? Do, I feel like people are often saying, like entrepreneurs and things like that, like, oh, but it's people will find it boring, and if they've and maybe they've got a product that isn't exciting. But even I found artists that struggle with it, even if they have really interesting work, they they struggle on the story side of things. I think it 
if you're talking about, say, the artist's personal brand, that's very different than, of course, the artwork as a whole as a brand and telling the story of that. So these, I think people often muddy the two and they're not the same, right? So obviously, if you think about Picasso, his artwork stands alone and is a brand in and of itself. And then personally, Picasso, his life story, <laughs> that is its own really crazy and intense brand. And I think that's where artists get really muddy um, is they mix the two and it makes sense. I've mixed the two people hire warm robots because I am the warmest robot <laughs> behind my agency and I'm the agency lead, but also my agency separately does a lot of work that people never hear about and is not necessarily tied to me personally, Goldie Chan. Um, and the way I try to separate these two, because I think that's a good way to start is once again, what is the story that you are telling about yourself, about you, X, I'm going to give the person a really exciting name, X. Um, <laughs> and then what is the story about your art brand, Z, um, Z? Um, what is the story there? Because these two things should have a tie between them, but should be separate. So maybe you personally are a really creative person who's a dancer, who's a painter, um, who creates videos, and you are very expressive um, just a very expressive, intense person, and that's your personal brand. But maybe just picking out just paintings, your paintings are very neon, they're very bright, they're only in oils, um, they're only a fish, I'm just making something up right now. And that to me is a very specific brand for your style of art that then ties back to you as a person, but it doesn't explain you entirely as a person. I think that's the other thing that happens with artists a lot is that we become our art, we become our work that we do. And of course, a person has so much more to themselves than just a style of art too. Yeah, cause I suppose, um, and I think it's helpful. Because I suppose as a person, you're not really gonna change. Like you are who you are and like the things that you like will change over time. So for example, like if you've got an artistic style, you might do that for a few years, get bored of it or learn something new and then move into a different direction. But you're still gonna be who you are at the end of the day. So I suppose that's why it's important to have those two things because a styles may change, but then your, your purpose, your beliefs, what you want from the world aren't. Mm -hmm. And I think that a really great example I have of this is actually somebody that I interviewed and I had been bothering him and his PR agent forever. And his name is Dante Colley. He's an amazing dancer on Instagram. And if you ever watch his videos, he has a very specific style there. And he's been on every talk show like Ellen, like USA Today. He does these really like vibrant dance videos that have emojis coming out of it and words that he throws on screen. So they're very multimedia and interactive. And when we talked, he said he doesn't want to be known for just doing that specific kind of video because he's clearly yeah. an artist that exists and does so much more. And what's fascinating is during this quarantine time, he has been exploring much more of very different styles of expressing himself because at the end of the day, he's a dancer. And that's the core of it. It's the core isn't throwing emojis on his video. The core is that he is a beautiful, beautiful dancer um, and very thoughtful. So I think definitely understanding that your artistic style or how you creatively express yourself might change over time. But the core of you, like you said, the core of you likely doesn't really change because as humans, we're incredibly stubborn people and we very rarely fundamentally change. Some of us do, and it's beautiful, but most of us, we fundamentally stay very similar. So I know a lot of our audience listening to this will probably think, well, I'm getting started, I'm a creative. Now, which brands do I push? I've got an Instagram page. Which brand do I start to push on that? Is it my personal brand or is it the creative brand that I'm currently pushing or do they both fit in the same space? I think this is such a great question because I've seen people do both. So I'll just describe a couple scenarios, which I think is actually really helpful. So one is, um, well, first of all, I am lucky enough to be an Adobe ambassador. Let me tell you, when Adobe reached out to me, that's when I cried. Like, sorry, WeWork, I didn't cry when you asked me to be ambassador. Uh, <laughs> but when Adobe asked me to be ambassador, 
actually on their business end. And now I'm on their create events. So I'm technically two ambassadors in one. Um, I got to meet all of these amazing creative folks. And one of them, she does photos of herself that then she photoshops into magical landscapes. So clearly she's an artist. Um, she's a digital artist, but she puts herself literally into these photos. So that's definitely a creative artistic brand where she's built herself in, in a way that feels very natural because she's physically in the photos. Um, mm -hmm. And then there's another person who's also an ambassador with me. And what he does is he takes real life photos and he adds this like beautiful magical element. So he makes flowers glow. Um, he'll put in, he just makes things like vibrant and fairy-like and all of this other stuff. And he's never in physically any of his art. He always has his friends be in it or he has other people be in it. But clearly that's his aesthetic that's present. So I think, first of all, it just depends on what your art literally includes. Just physically, does it physically include you or not? And then also, I know a lot of artists, what they do is they'll show behind the scenes videos. And I love behind the scene artistic videos. They're so fun. And that to me yeah. is a great way to gently and really naturally bring in yourself is to show behind the scenes. Like I've done a couple of like, here's me on set shooting on a red carpet because I think it's neat and not everyone gets that experience. Um, and for other people that might be a time lapse of them drawing. And I can say this because I have lots of friends who do time lapses of them uh, drawing or time lapses of them editing. And then it has an element of them in it. So it's their personal brand plus their artistic brand tied together. And it doesn't feel quite so forced, which I know a lot of artists uh, can be very shy and don't want to necessarily put their face on camera and talk directly to camera. And I'm here to say you don't have to do that. Anyone who tells you that you have to put your face all over everything, you absolutely do not. There's so many successful artists who don't put their face all over everything. They just have a really strong artistic brand um, and they show a little bit of the behind the scenes and the creative process because that's helpful, but you don't necessarily need to put your business uh, out on for the entire world to see. I'm sure a lot of people are going to be very happy to hear that. So with, with uh, I, I guess for a lot of people, it will probably seem like you came out of nowhere because this this rise on LinkedIn was very fast um, for, for, like, for a lot of people, but you had been working in marketing for 10 years prior. So you kind of, you knew what you were talking about um, and you'd, you'd sort of like, you'd paid your dues, I guess would be, would be the correct term. Um, when, like, so through your journey, have there been any sort of notable mistakes that you've made? Because from everything on the surface, it just looks like, like this kind of rocket ship that's just taken off. Well, I mean, I work in personal branding. And so prior to me doing this, I actually did personal brands uh, for Fortune 500 CEOs and C-level executives. And I still do that to this day. So I ghostwrite for a lot of old white people. Um, and for those of you, once again, who can't see me, I am not an old white man. Uh, <laughs> not to throw that out there, but I don't, I don't physically or visually look like the people that I create content for. So I, I knew some of the pitfalls of creating a brand before that, but the kind of brand I created was not at all the kind of brand that I would make for a C-level executive. So of course there were so many mistakes I made. Like I said, from 2017 to 2018, I started in August of 2017, I lost almost all of my non-closest friends. They all disappeared. They all hated me by the end of it because they were just like, this is the stupidest thing ever, um, you need to stop. And I realized a lot of that actually came from jealousy or insecurity. Uh, and yeah, if you become sure. successful, for everybody listening to this, if you become number one on a platform, yeah. it is to me somewhat sad because I want to like people and I want everybody to be friends and I, I want to be friends with almost everyone, but you cannot be friends with everyone and be number one, it's just, a hard rule of life. People will ab people who were close to you, especially when you were creating and you kind of grew up together, so to speak, 
they will eventually disown you because they want to be number one. And you can't have, you just don't have two number ones. It's only you or them. And so for me, I did a lot of stepping back. I did a lot of, I actually never wanted to be number one. So the way I became number one is, first of all, they called me the Oprah of LinkedIn on in Huffington Post, and then <laughs> that nickname kind of stuck. But also, I, when I recorded this how to make LinkedIn videos, LinkedIn on the teleprompter put a line in that I did not write that was like, hi, I'm Goldie Chan. I'm the number one video creator on LinkedIn. And so I actually tried to not say that. I like skipped over it in the recording um, and they made me go back and say it because they really wanted me to own, uh, particularly being number one. And I think that is that is just a natural pitfall that I will bring up, which is when you become super successful, it's really beautiful in that you have so many fans and you have so many people who want to support you. And I love that. But you also have the dark side of things. You have people who now hate you. You have people who only want something from you. So they are bugging you because they want to intro to one of the big brands you work with. So there's, you have to think through relationships a lot more. And in terms of other mistakes I've made, I've made so many. Um, I, when I was just starting out, I hired a manager um, who's a friend who actually worked with influencers before. But the thing is, no one's really worked with LinkedIn influencers. In fact, LinkedIn influencers as an idea did not exist before I existed, right? Or my cohort existed. So this manager was treating me like an Instagram influencer, and that just did not work well. Um, and so that's a huge mistake I made was hiring yeah. too early when I should have been just negotiating those contracts um, myself with help from my friends, right? Like with help from people I know who are just good at negotiating things in general. Um, and I think that is one of the things that I know I struggled with, especially in the beginning, and I still struggle with to this day is, you know, I graduated the degree in biology from Stanford. Everyone assumes that I'm great at numbers and, and I understand everything completely. And let me tell you, you don't, gra you don't graduate from any school and understand anything completely, um, and especially not me. So I never took a contract class in college. It was just not part of what I did. And so I'm always looking for people to partner with to do these nitty gritty contracts and things like that. But it's sometimes good for you to handle it and struggle through it yourself. And of course, now I, I have a, yeah. a great lawyer I work with. Like I, that's the one person I would suggest you absolutely should have in your back pocket is have a lawyer who can look through things for you. And especially if you don't have a lot of money, then have a lawyer who is willing to do some pro bono work for you or give you discounted poor person rates. Um, just to help you get started because a lawyer is going to be honestly one of the most helpful hires for you to have. Not a social media manager, not anything, but a lawyer. Because once you start getting deals in the door, you really need a lawyer to look over those things. Definitely. For anyone who didn't join LinkedIn three years ago, is it too late for them to start today? So if we think about YouTube, right, if you think about, and I should really know this off the top of my head, but whenever YouTube started, if you think three years later into YouTube starting, was it too late then? No, of course not. And now we're like a billion years, that's not exact, <laughs> uh, later on YouTube. Um, and is it too late to join YouTube? I don't think so if you have a narrow and niche enough idea, right, and some ad spend budget. But on LinkedIn, we're only three years later. Um, and so to think it's already done, to me, is a very lazy approach to it because you can still get through the noise on LinkedIn organically. And a lot of platforms don't have that cool organic reach. Like I just said for YouTube, like you, you probably want some ad spend, Facebook, forget it. Um, Instagram, you can still kind of make a presence on there, but once again, it's very crowded. And on LinkedIn, because it's still uncool, it is still so uncool, guys. It is still a platform where you can make your mark on it. 
Um, and it's of course not as easy as it was three years ago to do that. But also you have to understand three years ago, everyone would have been doing what they did with me and what they did to everybody else I knew, which is yell at them for being so stupid for doing this yeah. on a platform that doesn't make sense. And you get yelled at for a full year. I mean, I said three to six months, but I was being yelled at even a year into it. So even into 2018, people are just like, well, this is cool, but it's really stupid. You should really be on YouTube. And I love every single time somebody suggested YouTube, they really thought that I had never heard that commentary <laughs> before or Instagram. And they really thought I had never heard of Instagram or YouTube before. <laughs> so how do you break through the noise on LinkedIn? So I think one of the ways to really think through breaking through the noise now is to be hyper specific and to also make sure that it makes sense for LinkedIn. So what makes sense on YouTube, right? Funny prank joke videos um, or like even TikTok, funny prank <laughs> <laughs> short form videos or music sing-alongs, that's not LinkedIn. And it makes you look really unprofessional to do that. But I've had people ask me, okay, well, I own a fashion boutique. Or, and so on Instagram, I'm posting pictures of all the dresses that we sell in our shop, right? That's a good example. And on YouTube, they might do a package opening, right? An unboxing and show off things. On LinkedIn, you can't do any of those things. You'll get laughed right off the platform. So what can we do? We tie in business or marketing. So we talk about the business of being an entrepreneur in general in the fashion or retail space. And that's like a really great way to tie in um, thinking about things. Or say you're a UX UI designer. And on other platforms, maybe you're showing like really beautiful just clips of things. On LinkedIn, you do a tutorial about how to think through UX UI for a small business website. And to me, that's once again, building in the business marketing side, but still staying true to what you do and so focused because what you want to do is you want to make sure that you are focused on at least one keyword, one or two keywords that you want to be known for. So do you want to be known for a UX UI? Then you really should be doing UX UI yeah. content. Um, if you want to be known as a graphic artist, like you should really have graphic artists in a lot, if not all of the content that you put out there. And it's important to think about a keyword. And I know, especially for artistic creative folks, we never want to be a keyword. We never want to be a single thing on a piece of paper, but it's so helpful to be that on LinkedIn specifically, like take your 5 million jobs and put them on somewhere else. Because on LinkedIn, if I go to your profile and I see you have 12 jobs, it's so confusing. And especially right now when we are all so muddy in our heads, it's even more confusing if someone has 12 jobs. So I always also say, try to narrow it down so you only have at most two different things that you do, because most people won't even remember two. Mm -hmm but we want to make things simple. It's true. Yeah, that's that's great advice. Um this has been uh, this has been so amazing. Um the the time has whipped by. Um what would be your um what would be your past your um parting words? What's the um biggest piece of advice that you could impart on a creative audience? Have a purpose for creating. As everybody's nodding on camera, you guys can't see it, so I'm definitely right. Um, <laughs> I'll go into it a little bit more. There's a, there's a moment of silence because I think artists do this really, really well, but having a purpose, being very, very creative and tying that purpose to what you do and who you work with. I think that's really important because none of us truly create in a bubble, um, even for those of us that never work with brands or never get sponsored, you're still selling to someone unless you're independently wealthy in case blessed, like great, great for you. But I'm assuming the majority yeah. of people who are listening to this, that's not the case. So whoever you work with, whether that's your direct audience or the brands, having a clear purpose, knowing what causes you support and who you believe in, that really comes through in what you do. So I am so, like I definitely support uh, Black Lives. Like I believe in diversity in boardrooms. I believe in LGBT. Like 
I believe in all of these things. I know it comes through because it's part of my purpose, which one of my main purposes in life is not any of the glossy things you see, but it's just to create a safe space for other people. And that's how I was able to skyrocket on LinkedIn because I actually didn't try to be number one. I kept stepping back and letting other people, you know, like showcasing other people's work, commenting on their stuff, really trying to pull other people up. I remember my first, my second speaking gig ever on a big stage, I actually said, okay, I will speak for you guys, but I also want a panel because I want to bring other people who are doing what I do who would never get asked to speak on stage. And I think that is really, really helpful to just know at your core what your purpose is and then bring that through in everything that you do. Boom. Amazing. Um, Goldie, thank you so much. We are, we're big fans of yours. Uh, where can people find you online? Well, I think I already said my Instagram, so let's start with that. Uh, my Instagram is at Goldie Cylon, C-Y-L-O-N. Um, my Twitter is at Goldie Chan, C-H-A-N, A is an apple. Uh, and my LinkedIn is linkedin.com slash in slash Goldie. And honestly, if you just Google Goldie Chan, I'm like the first five pages of Google search. So <laughs> incredibly easy to find. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much. This has been great. Good. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much for listening. If you get any value from these episodes, it would mean the world to us if you could share the podcast with someone who needs it. You can always reach out to us on Instagram at rebelscreate or head over to creativerebels.co. And remember, always be creating. See ya.